0: Kimberly Seapalm, as I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well tour. I want to welcome you, Gabby, to the podcast. What I love about talking to people like yourself is that you are very similar to me. You're an author, you're an advocate, you're a blogger, but you also uh, live in two different worlds. You are a warrior in the end-of-life field because you are actually uh, a hospice nurse, and that's your full-time job on a daily basis. And that's I I tell people I was raised by hospice nurses, because um, they're like, you talk like a nurse. I'm like, only because I was raised by them. Um, but what I have found out, doing a little research on you, is that we have so much in common. I mean, I, I didn't want to be in the end-of-life field or hospice, and it sort of came to me. And you started off with a different career. And I wanted you to share your story because I think it's a freaking phenomenal story.
1: This is definitely uh, the last job I would have ever thought I would do for sure. Uh, I've been in commercial real estate most of my life, managing commercial properties, and then we moved from there into safety um, on steel construction sites. You know, which was a, a a lot of work and a lot of information and sometimes a little scary, but it was, it was where I was planted firmly and felt that that's where I would be forever. And then, um, and I was laid off. And at the time, my friend's husband, who was one of my closest friends was, um, very sick and dying and she needed to continue to work. So she asked me if I would come and stay with her and him and help take care of him. So, of course, I would do anything for them. So I went to Las Vegas for a little while, and I stayed with them, and I, I slept in the twin bed next to his, and I helped him get up, and I helped him bathe, and I helped feed him, and I sat with him, and I talked to him, and and I was helping my friend. But I would watch these hospice people come in, and I thought – I. At that time, I don't like the term now, but at the time, I truly believed that they were angels. So, um, I don't think of us as angels, but I do get why people think that because I felt that about them. And I knew that that I wanted to do something like that. And so after he passed away, I went to school to be a CNA and then a home health aide. And I became a caregiver and I sat at the bedside of of mostly elderly, and I was a companion. You know, I was their friend. I learned so much from them about life and love and relationships and family. And um, and then I had my first patient, oh, patient um, die, and I think that's the first time I ever really cried at a death, even though I had many, many deaths prior to that. It was the first time I got it, like what end of life is and how fragile life is. And I felt such deep loss. And, and I decided to go back to school in 40-something and become a hospice nurse, not a nurse. I wanted to be a hospice nurse. So I went back to school and it was really gosh darn hard. Oh, my God. <laughs> the fact that it made it blows my mind.
0: I'm sure you were there with all of these 20 year olds and the 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 generation gap. What what were you
1: thinking? Well, I wanted to smack them and put them in the corner and get them to time out. <laughs> they were awful. Oh my gosh. They were so oh. awful and so bratty and clicky. And here I wanted to mother bear them and like, you guys, let's all study together, you know? <laughs> so I was on my own for the most part. It was really rough. And they did really um thoughtless things. Like they, if a patient smelled bad, they'd plug their nose and there was just some really rude, immature behaviors, um, which I think isn't necessarily taught in nursing school. I think it's a human behavior to be kind to others. And some people don't have it. I don't think some of them had it. Some of them did. And they, you know, they were lovely, but it was really hard. It was hard being one of the oldest ones in the class.
0: I bet even being having the experience, and, and you know what, I have met some great nurses, and they probably have never been a CNA. But when I meet a nurse, and by the way they talk, I can tell that they, they were a CNA first.
1: Thank you,
0: Yeah, there's something different about them. There, there's just something. They're never above anything. They're they're in it for so much more than just being a nurse. It's almost like they're they're like, well, I'm human too. I don't know what it is. Um, but I've always fallen in love with those who had started off as CNAs and graduated up to LPNs, if they're even around anymore, to RNs. Um they they're just they hold a special place in my heart.
1: I think it's important to start as a CNA or a home health aide Simply to understand what it's like to lay in that bed. And I think that's really important. I was managing our hospice house for a while. And the way that I trained our home health aides was I had them lie in the bed. And I said, close your eyes. I'm going to move a pillow out from under your head, but not tell you. I'm going to shut a light on without telling you. I'm going to raise and lower the bed without telling you. How does that feel? And And they, right now, I get to still, because I still work with some of them, I watch how they are, and they're gentle, and they're kind. And if they decide to go to nursing school, they would be incredibly great nurses.
0: Absolutely. I totally get it. I get it. You're talking to a middle child. Uh, My older sister's a nurse, and my younger brother is a nurse, but my father calls me. (laughs) I'm really close to my father and he's going through some health issues and he's like, if, if someone needs to come take care of me, you're going to do it, right? I'm like, yes, I will. <laughs> he goes, they, they think they know too much. I'm like, I, no. I get that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but they're always advocating because they they see, um, as well as I being in hospice for 17 years, it, they see the, the red tape and the hoops that that are so unfamiliar to those who are just first diagnosed with a serious illness. And so they don't they want to protect him um and I'm always the kind of person like dad you know when you if you do this this is gonna happen he goes yes and so you know you forget that your father is a little bit older and wiser than you are um and he he's still an adult and can take care of himself but um but my sister and brother they're they're really uh they're they're nurses to the core but hey you know what was interesting when I was doing or a little bit of research, is that you were exposed to death at a very young age, just like me, and I I never thought about that exposure until years later, as I was e- getting involved with hospice care. But how how much of an impact that I ended up being exactly where I needed to be? But but tell me tell me about your exposure and and were you. Are you surprised that it had, are you surprised that that exposure kind of influenced what you're doing today?
1: So the truth is, I didn't really remember it until I started working on the second book because the second book started out as this, um, like it was there all along. I just didn't know it. Um, I was probably seven ish, I think, and I heard the crash. I went out to where the crash happened. It was a gentleman on a motorcycle. I, in writing about it, it all came back to me, and I didn't carry that with me through my years. But when I started writing about it, I realized it's always been there. If that makes sense,
0: Mm, I you're talking to a writer, which yes, that totally makes sense to me.
1: Um, Carried him with me, and and I put him, I put his head in my lap. And I just kept rubbing his head. And now I'm a seven-year-old, right? And I kept wondering, where are his parents? Why isn't there anyone here? But the one thing I remember saying to him is, "Is you're going to be okay. You're gonna, I'm right here. I got you. Which is what I say now. And so was I a hospice nurse then? Certainly in training, you know? And, and, <laughs> I'm sure. right? and then all the years that led up to now, all the little things, those little little glimpses makes me realize that I was meant to do this. I just didn't know it.
0: Mm. Wow. You mentioned your second book. Let's talk about your two books. Tell me a little bit about your first one and then tell me about the second one. And I'm sure you got a third one coming.
1: I do. (laughs) So so the first one is called Soft Landing because I always strive to make the landing soft. Um, It's about, okay, so the reason I wrote the first book my hope was that I could inspire people my age to not to not think that they aren't worthy of bigger and better, and to not give up and to to get over those hurdles and obstacles and not let them get in the way. Because nursing school was really hard for me, and I almost failed it multiple times, and um, and I almost didn't become a nurse because it was really hard for me, and I I had a really. Difficult time and so I wanted to write the book To say it was awful. It was hard. I beat myself up But look look what I have now, you know, like look what I get to do Because I don't want people to think that at a certain age you have to stop shooting for the stars I say shoot for them always and so I wrote it with that in mind and and all the obstacles that got me there And then I had started writing the blog because as a hospice nurse, things that I learned um, initially on when I was working our hospice house, I was very selfish and I thought those were my patients. And so the lessons that I learned early on was how important the team was in hospice, how important each person in that role was and the contribution that they gave to the families and the patient. But also I realized that when I walk away, someone else is going to sit at that bedside, whether it's a a volunteer, a home health aide, a caregiver, or a family member. And I realized I needed to take myself out of the equation a little bit, but hand them the tools. So when I walked away, they could take it and move forward with it. So I started writing the blog kind of in with soft landing to um, encourage people to take my tools and feel confident at the bedside. So Soft Landing was my struggle and my lessons. Ah, oh, I love it. It was good. It felt good to write it. And your second book? Second book is The Hospice Heart, which is what I call the Hospice Heart Facebook page. Um, and that was about kind of carrying on the blogs as well to continue mm. the gifts. I want to keep handing out all the stuff that gets handed to me. and. In writing it, I started realizing that there was all these things that happened throughout my life that led me there. And so that was an add to the book. That wasn't where it was supposed to go. The Hospice Heart kind of took a tailwind onto Soft Landing and saying, look, it was there all along. Like, I don't know if you read it, but there's a story I write called Cemetery Girl. (laughs) So I used to hang out at the cemetery. I would walk. I don't know how many miles, back then it didn't seem like miles, but, and I would hang out at the cemetery and I would sit at the stones and I would blow bubbles and eat peanut butter and jelly. And I would imagine the lives that the people underground lived before they died. And it sort of inspired me to And it makes me think about now because what I learn the most in the work that we do is to live this life, you know, to live it big and great and wonderful because you only really get one chance. And I think that Cemetery Girl expresses that. Hmm. So that's what that book is about. So, you
0: know, I'm a little confused here because you are working full time as a hospice nurse and which I know because I, like I said earlier, I was raised by hospice nurses I see sometimes that the work-life balance is difficult for hospice nurses. But yet, you know, what do you find? Because you must find something to write about this, to blog about this, to create a community on Facebook. Why do you feel called to do that as well? And that's also what we have in common. Because my friends, they're just like, how can you accomplish so much? I'm like, I think I just ha- I something inside of me I just feel like I must do it and if I I I've, I've got one life to to hit you know a base hit and I'm just hoping that I can get on base um to live a good life um so do you have the, tell me a little bit about what inspires you at the end of a full-time job somewhat an emotional uh, compassion fatigue. A lot of our coworkers are. To you, to come home, and and inspire other warriors to keep going.
1: That's a really great question because so when I shut the door after I have either held um, a wife who said goodbye to her husband or told a husband that she doesn't have much time left or talked to children about those things that you got to say. When I close that door and walk out to my car, a lot happens to me. I, um, I cry, mm. cry a lot. And I feel, and each time I experience those things, I think I can't be alone. Someone else must feel this. And I guess what I want to do is, I want to remind people that they're not alone. So I started the Hospice Heart Facebook page because I wanted to kind of build a community, maybe. A safe place where people could feel, whether they are hospice workers, whether they're a wife who lost her husband, whether they're children that are having to say goodbye, or whether they're patients themselves who need to understand what's going on. I wanted to, it's a little selfish because where I was creating it for them, I was really creating it for me because I needed a place to talk about what I do. Mm. And I feel when I do it, because people don't ask me how my day is because they're afraid I'm going to tell them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so true. You know what it's, I mean? Like, yeah. so I,
1: I want to talk about the work we do because I think it's amazing and there's not a lot of places that I get to do it. So I decided I was going to create it myself and it's taken on a life of its own and it's a beautiful place to feel the feels. And some days are harder than others, but that's where I get to go. And now I can throw something out there saying I'm having a really rough day. And someone will say, oh, my gosh, me too. And they'll offer me hugs, you know. Mm-hmm. And, or, or I'll say, how are you guys feeling today? Let's talk a little bit about your grief. Let's let's walk you through that, you know. And, and so some days it's not about me. But the truth is that page is all about all that stuff that swirls around inside me that sometimes doesn't have a place to go.
0: Ah, I love it. So basically, it's you on a page, which I believe is present, authentic, and very vulnerable. And we're so desperate for people like you right now in a world that we're social distancing, where we can't be with loved ones where when they're in the hospital. Um, but this has been our world for a long time, you and I, within hospice. A lot of people turn their heads away. They don't know what to say, so they don't say anything. Which half the time, you don't have to say anything. You just have to freaking show up. Um, and just be like, this sucks, but I'm here. Um, and I have no clue what to say next. And and just be you. Um, I Have you found that once you start telling your story it sort of gives other people permission to be like thank god yes i feel the same way
1: i think we people in our line of work especially i think they want to share their story because it, i think about what i see and the the lives that i'm invited into and the the lessons i learn whether it's about love or family or culture or faith Oh my gosh! I am exposed to so much different faith and tradition and commitment to a, a spiritual practice that I think is amazing. People always say thank you for for being here for us. I want to say no, thank you for what you're giving me. So if I see it, imagine what everybody else in this this line of work sees and feels and experiences. We're, we must be bursting to share it because mm. I am. Mm. I, we see. People think we see death, but we see life.
0: Oh, I, uh, gosh, uh, we could bottle that up and sell it, because a lot of people, when you, when I tell them about my personal experience in my hospice, their shoulders kind of drop, um, especially if I'm traveling for a speaking engagement, and they're like, "So, what do you do?" And I'm like, "How can I play this?" Um, uh, I work for hospice, and they're like, "Oh, yeah." And you know that's going to the event, and on the way back, they're like, "What do you do?" And I'm like, "I work for hospice. Want some?" And they're just like, "Uh-uh, I don't want any of that." <laughs> but I'm just impressed that they know what hospice is um, because I'm I'm in love with hospice. I I'm in love with Dame Cicely Saunders and why she even created or had the vision to do something that I could participate in and actually feel whole again, wholehearted again. But, you know, our field called hospice has gone through so many changes. And the one thing that I, as a senior leader within a hospice organization, is as we grew as an organization, and I say that as we serve more and more people, we tended to leave the staff behind and not take care of them. And I think when I left my organization, whether I said it to anyone or even myself as I, as I drove away for the last day, I was thinking I will never leave hospice staff again behind. I can't. So whatever I do moving forward, it has to include hospice staff and how we take care of them. And you, as well as you, I say that very selfishly because i want people like you at my dad's bedside and my bed and i see some of my our colleagues leaving this field when they were born to to be in it because of this thing called compassion fatigue you know and and so what do we you and me you created this platform but how else can we contribute As a hospice organization or just even individuals or friends for people working in hospice, how can we support the staff in simple ways, internal and external?
1: So for work-wise, I think think it's really important to feel, and I use this word a lot, but safe being able to share with someone in your work, your manager, your higher-ups or whatever, and be able to say, I'm having a tough day without them thinking, oh, gosh, she's going to take time off. We're going to have to get PTO. We're going to have, you know, and <laughs> I want to know that I can. Take- Who's going to see her patients? <laughs> I, to, I I need to know that I can, I can do that. But when I see some of our nurses having a tough time, I, I don't do it to all of them. But if I if I feel it, I'll reach out. And just go, hey, how you doing? Or if I know that one of their patients passed, and I'll read about it, I'll send them a little red heart and just go, hey, you did a really great job with her. Oh wow! Because I think we we are so busy and we're so wrapped up giving all of ourselves to someone who is dying, we forget to give it to each other, and we can't do that. We have to lift each other up, and that might sound a little bit whatever, but. It's the truth. I I I want my team that I get to work with, who I'm honored to work with, I want them to know the beautiful work that they do and that it's okay to cry some days and it's okay to say, I don't know if I can do this much longer. And it's okay to break down and just feel that grief because it is grief. And if you don't feel it, it bottles up and the pain and the ache is heavier and heavier and heavier. I would like to think that people make themselves a safe place and the environment a safe place where you are not questioned, your ability isn't questioned because you are having a tough day.
0: I love that. And, you know, just because we, in the, the field of end of life, yeah, we, we experience and, and feel loss a lot. But when it comes to our own in, inner personal circle, we're just like everyone else. You know, just because, you know, that hospice experience there, I've seen many times that I have acted like I've never had one day of hospice experience when it came to, you know, my loved ones. Or they either, you know, saw me as a little pigtail embraces girl still and they're like, yeah, you don't know nothing. Um, So, it's like, it's really interesting how we can still feel differently as as a family member or a close friend versus the exposure we have to, to our hospice patients. You know, when I was writing my book, bridging the gap, I, I I love, Oh, Oh, thanks. That You're awesome. I love you. Um, And you know what? I've decided right now that I have to die before you because I want you to be my hospice nurse.
1: (laughs) I decided you can't die because I want to keep you forever.
0: (laughs) But you know, when I was writing my book, I, I did not do a lot of socializing for four months and I cried and cried. And I I had a friend who was a nurse um, within hospice that came over, kind of a chaplain, her husband was a pastor, but she came over and I said, I can't stop crying. And she softly patted my knee and she goes, that's grief. And I'm like, oh, yeah, am I finally grieving all these people that have entered my life? And I never stopped to realize the full impact. And that's when I learned that probably one of the greatest lessons that I've learned from the dying is that time is not measured by length, it's measured by depth. That someone can enter your life and be there for two days, but the impact, the depth of the relationship can be so rich that it can be almost like losing some part of you. Um, what is your experience? I mean, we're not robots. We we can't cut off our emotions. Just like Brene Brown says, if you're going to feel love, you got to feel sad. I mean, you can't selectively, you know, numb out to one feeling or the next. You got to feel it all or nothing. So how do you do that? And how do you help your colleagues, you know, maintain that work-life balance?
1: Well. Wow. If you know me at all, I feel things and I don't hold back. Um, when I'm having a tough day, most of the time, you know it. Sometimes I kind of keep to myself. Um, I I think you have to find the people that you're able to reach out to, to talk about it. My For me, it's writing. Writing always helps me. Um, writing, you know, the blog helps me. Writing on the Facebook page helps me because those,
0: Do you journal as well?
1: See, I never have been. Uh, I don't want to write about like, and so today I'm on the tour. No, I want (laughs) to, I want, I, I can only write about something specific that touched me. And it could be on all extremes, angered me, disappointed me, saddened me. For my colleagues, I think what I try to do is I try to remind them of their value and how beautiful and lovely they are. Because I think when you are reminded that, you can go back to why you're doing what you're doing. And and when you're in hospice specifically, we are at the bedside of people who are dying with people who love them and have to say goodbye. And that is a very emotional type of work. And so if you're doing it, I have to believe your heart is a compassionate heart. And if I feel like I might see someone that I work with that is struggling in some way or maybe kind of lost that, I remind them because we are so unique and we all bring something different. And And I do think I am good at what I do, but I am not all of it. I think Our other nurses, our other home health aides, our volunteers, they bring magic and love and beauty and amazing gifts to the transitions that our patients and families go through. So I want to remind them of their gifts. So if I can do anything for them, it is to tell them not to forget why they're doing what they're doing, but also not to punish themselves if they feel the need to stop it's okay what's not okay is to keep going when you want to stop like maybe maybe know your limits and take a moment to to refresh
0: mm i love that i love that you, you know i that is ingrained in me of how can i help hospice leaders in, in the world of medicare regulations really take care of those taking care of the dying which are our staff and make them make the leadership and our and hospice organization realize their only goal is staff because when you hire people, you hire the right people that that have the heart and the head, but you can teach skill, you can't teach compassion, you can't teach to show up and not say anything um and and you know when if anyone um it would would lean back, whether they work for a hospice organization or even a family member, the CNAs, the people who they taught me so much about caring for the smallest details of
1: brushing a dry mouth.
0: yeah, uh-huh. brushing their hair, knowing that the patient every day would put on lipstick and even though she wasn't able to do that, they did it to help her.
1: fix her hair because she's so vain and that would make her happy
0: yes i mean it it, i if if everyone loved like cnas i wonder what the world would be like
1: gentler kinder you know the other thing i was thinking about the question you just asked another thing that i think is really important is you know our our nurses our casement all of us actually they're all very over, you know, they've got a, a big caseload. And it's very easy to walk into one home or a facility with the idea that you have three more to see after. I think the most important thing, if I could give anyone advice on how to do this better, is to leave your watch in the car. And that's figuratively, not necessarily. Um, but you know, turn your phone off. When you go into someone's home, let's say it's a home, you go into their home, Yes, you've got things you have to do after but at that time they don't get a do-over, right? They're dying right then their their wife is watching them. Their daughter is watching them. Their husband is watching them. This is their experience We need to go in there so fully present and so on point with them that we're not looking at our watch and saying how okay I can only be here for 30 minutes This is a dying experience. This is the last time this is ever going to happen for any of them The best and most important thing we can do is stop time for them and fully present. And I think that would change the way that we are um, at the bedside. And you brought up the caregivers, the CNAs, the caregivers, the home health aides. When they're washing a patient's hair, they're not thinking about the next patient. They're thinking about washing their hair and making sure they have a clean shirt on, and the sheets are clean, and that they're comfortable. If we had that mindset, imagine how better those last moments could be for someone. We're we're someone's last best moment. What can we do to make it just a little kinder?
0: I totally agree, and I I I, I t- often joke because being part of leadership. You know, I would be with some hospice nurses and they would be so present um, because, you know, you got to document at the time in front of the patient and, I, and they would leave their computers in their trunk and, and document for 20 or 30 minutes out in the driveway. And I asked one nurse, I'm like, yeah, but aren't you supposed to document it in front of the patient? And she goes, some things I will never put in between me. And the patient and family. And I was like, oh, you're a rebel. She goes, for a cause. Oh, I like that. For a cause. Only for a cause.
1: You know, what does that mean when you sit there in your phone, you know, the people with the watch phones, you know, and they're constantly looking? Don't do that. This isn't about yeah.
0: Yeah and, and and I know that those who do have felt the pressure from leadership or their bosses or you know in but I I love those nurses that that are like look I'm here for the patients and families and I'm going to get the job done and this is where you know we uh, I am really trying to work with individuals who might have an impact when it comes to these regulations. We have got to have some flexibility for professionals to, because the end-of-life field and the dying is different than ICU. It's different than, you know, me breaking an arm and going to the ER – it's different, and so we have to practice different. It's not; it's outside of the medical model. So, how do we do that differently? But also have standards. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I I know that I've struggled only because I've seen our chaplains and our social workers, volunteers, even and doctors and and CNAs just struggle with trying to be present, but also follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules. And how can you do it with a little, a little room to, to move, to navigate in? Cause I'm going to, I, I want a nurse that doesn't want to follow the rules at the bedside of my father, that if I'm alone in, in, they feel like I'm just going to sit here for 20 more minutes. I want them to have that gift of time to give me, but also give themselves um, because it is a human impulse um, to want to be present and especially when it comes to a dying patient. You, you know what the, uh, the other thing we have in common, which I love is that and I know you worked hard for your you know degree and, and being a nurse, but I see you bringing so much more creativity. Than the average nurse to your role, and I believe that is it because you came into this at an older age and went through that CNA kind of um, viewpoint before you becoming a nurse. Because you look at you're you're with patients and fo- you know doing is following the rules. Let's just say <laughs> as best you can to be present at the bedside of the dying. But then you come home with this whole creative outlet that it's almost like left, right brain really balanced, you know? It's really interesting. But I love when I see creativity being brought to such a, what seems to be from the outside, a black and white subject. Because I think death is very colorful. For sure. So talk to me about your next book. What are you working on?
1: So um, it it's kind of, in process because I keep like changing my way and I, you know what it's about? It's um, I can't tell you the name yet. Cause that's okay. Uh, right there yet, but it's about, it, it's kind of an accumulation of it all. And it's my thoughts about death uh, and what it must be like to die. And as human beings, how can we live a A fuller, better, more authentic, kinder life, knowing that we're gonna die. What could we do differently? How can we, you know, I I kind it's kind of like um it's it's living a life that dictates how you want to die. So so being kind, being thoughtful, vocalizing, talking with one another, like the whole conversation thing, right? Like I want to talk to my family now. They know what I want. They know how, how I want to listen to Tom Petty when I, well, I want them to listen to Tom Petty when I die. They know what I want to wear. I, I want to live a life that is celebratory and, um, and full of magic and, and beauty and laughter and silly and play. And, and, and so the book is about, not waiting for the bedside or that last breath to suddenly realize you didn't live your life. Hmm. I want to live my life. And, um, and maybe by reading it will remind people to stop being so darn stagnant.
0: Mm. You know, uh, I guess it's been a, over 10 years ago. I went to Fiji. And, you know, you, you don't go to Fiji every day especially if you live on the east coast of North Carolina. But I when I we, I went there for like 10 or 12 days and I found myself in Fiji just getting up early and going to bed late and and seeing the beauty of Fiji and and when I came back to North Carolina I needed a vacation from my vacation kind of thing. It was I was so exhausted. And I said to myself I'm like why why did I push myself so much? On being in Fiji. And I, and I was like, well, I might not ever see it again. And I knew it was going to end. And I was thinking, why am I not running with my hair on fire every day? Because I, my life will end one day. And, and that whole philosophy, um, in small ways, I mean, my dad really does hate advanced care planning because I'm, you know, in Fiji swimming with sharks. And he's like, I've ever since you started talking about planning for your end of life, you know, you're now doing things more boldly. And I said, I know, isn't that great that if I would have died in Fiji, things would have been done and you knew what to do. Um, and it does give me a new lease on being present. Um, for instance, um, the last two and a half years I've been in this RV and I don't have a dishwasher and I hate washing dishes. So every time I get up to wash dishes, I think of my friend who's who's in a wheelchair and can't walk. And if I was in a wheelchair and couldn't walk, what pleasure I would have to stand up and wash dishes. And so I try to to find simple pleasures that that I'm fortunate to have. And that's I think that's where you and I connect is is because you see the beauty in a lot of things where people see darkness and 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 i feel like i want to die well and if i want to die well i must live well right i must live well and you know it's funny cuz people will be like you're so happy or you're so this i'm just like well i'm never going to have you know, September 10th, 2020 again. And I can project all this shit out there or I can be like, be part of just saying, you know what, I can only do what I can.
1: You know, and it's not about going bungee jumping or, or challenging yourself, <laughs> although that's good for some people. I'll tell my dad that. <laughs> for me, it's about loving fiercely. And Ooh, the yeah. people that are in my life feel fiercely loved. And I want to, I want to laugh out loud to the point that I spit on, well, maybe not now because of COVID, but you know what I mean? Right, right. I want to giggle out loud at silly things. I want to, I want to let my granddaughters put things in my hair and get, you know, the other night, my granddaughters FaceTime me, they do this all the time. And and my oldest one says, Nana, do you want to play Candyland? And I said, how are we going to play Candyland? She goes, oh, Nana. I'm, and she lays out the Candyland, right? And she moved for me and we're playing Candyland on FaceTime. And the whole time I'm watching this with a glass of wine in hand, <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is my life and this is so spot on. Like, this is perfect. And then all of a sudden she jumps up and she says, Nana, you won. And i <gasps> I did? Like, how did I win? And she goes, Nana, look. And she lifts up the Candyland thing to show me. Of course, everything falls off of it. But I thought... Boy, is she right. I
0: won. Oh, that's so true. That's so true.
1: And I I feel lucky. Mm-hmm. And I feel very blessed. And I, I don't take that for granted.
0: Well, you know what? I feel blessed. I feel blessed that, that I've had the, this time with you today in the midst of you heading out the door to see another patient. I feel blessed of how much your work has helped me, and and knowing that I'm fighting for something that that means more than just, uh, you know, helping people die. Yeah, more than just a job. Um, Not just a job. It isn't. It isn't. And uh, and I I'm just so grateful to have your friendship, and I I hope that we become, you know, lifelong friends and. Honestly, if if I ever get diagnosed with anything and you're still a hospice nurse, I'm, I am I told Jessica Zeter, you know, I don't know about anything, but I know that dying in San Francisco, it must be a good thing because there's some really great people out there and you're close to that. I
1: love, I love Jessica.
0: <laughs> I know. She's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Look, thank you so much. Um, you're a gift to me and other people on your page. If If you're listening, check out. Um, her Facebook page. What's it called again? Heart to Heart.
1: Called the Hospice Heart. The
0: Hospice Heart. It's a community of hospice workers, families who've experienced some of these things, and can create a community to just just relate um, and and really have that space. But you and I also have a new project that we're working on um, that we have to mention because Michelle Little would would not be my friend if I didn't because she's been working her ass off on it. It's called Beautiful Dying Expo. It's going to be happening in November. And you can you can absolutely visit beautifuldyingexpo.com to learn more about it. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of chat about what your involvement with the Expo will be as well as you've been doing a lot of insights on live Facebook. Facebook, um, educating people, giving your gift of your tools, how you cope and deal with hospice patients, um, and see them as a gift, not really deal with them, but see them as a gift in your life. So what 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 are you doing with the expo?
1: So I am one of the collaborators, and I am working on the team of end-of-life care. So we are creating um, speakers, panelists, to talk about Um, the different parts of end of life care and what that means. We're coming from a couple different places where we're hoping to get social workers and chaplains combined to talk about the spiritual, emotional side of death and loss and grief. We're also, there's a, um, we're involving pediatric side of death, how difficult that is to navigate. And we've got some great people that are going to speak. The information that is going to be available is going to be, so worth the the price of admission you can pay for one day you can pay for three days you get to listen to people talk about things in little intimate groups and the information will be um incredible it'll be valuable it'll be um incredibly personal and you will meet some some Pretty amazing people who are sharing their gifts, and I I'm super honored to be a part of it. I was a part of the one last year, and like you said, Michelle Little is working her ass off.
0: Yeah, she is.
1: Shows, it's going to be a great event.
0: Well, and get this, people, these this event's going to be virtual, so you can sit at your desk. Um, and I I've been to many conferences in my life, personal as well as virtual. This I'm even ashamed to tell you how cheap this conference is um, where well, you're going to get exposed to Gabby to and I, I have the the pleasure of, of hosting this event um, during these days and, and meeting um, and seeing the speakers engage with with whoever shows up um, but I believe it's only like a $199 for a three day event and um, I, I just it's nonsensical not to do it because there's so many people and collaborative ideas that are happening That we could really come together and start taking care of one another. So, check it out, beautifuldianexpo.com. It's in November. Um, I don't have the dates right in front of me. Do you? 13, 14, 15. 13, 14, and 15, which November is National Hospice and Palliative Care Month. So, it's just a way um, for even, it's really cheap for even some of these hospices to allow CNAs to come to it as well. So, this might be an opportunity for those who rarely get to do some out-of-the-box conferencing um, to come and participate. And I, I again, beautifuldyingexpo.com. And I guess I'll see you over the Zoom calls coming up, um, and I'm really I'm really happy to be uh, co- you know collaborating with you and supporting Michelle as she uh, is an amazing amazing person. And she lost. Um, I know we're recording this on September 10th. I don't. It won't be airing tomorrow, but on the eve of Michelle's brother who was killed on 9/11 in New York, so I have to mention that because her brother has inspired her to to really do some amazing things with helping people uh, look at grief talk about advanced care planning and plan for end of life um, so i look forward to seeing you then gabby i just uh, i'm i love you i mean i just think you're amazing and i i think your organization is amaz- is is a wonderful organization to have you on board And um, if there's anything I can do to support you, this new book coming out, um, please don't hesitate to ask. And I look forward to seeing you in November at the beautiful Diane Expo.
1: Thank you so much, Kimberly. This has been as fun as I hoped it would be.
0: Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, Look him up. You can find him at 7seasonfilms.com.